2: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art, and society. I'm Sarah Collins, Assistant Editor at Prospect Magazine and today I'm delighted to be joined by planning barrister and author Hashi Mohammed and Ben Reeve Lewis co-founder of frontline housing charity Safer Renting to discuss the emotional side of Britain's housing crisis. As Mohammed writes in his new book, A Home of One's Own, the housing crisis is not just a knotty policy problem but a fundamental issue of justice. When the crisis is so complex, from inadequate protections for renters to foreign investors buying up central London to the dwindling stock of social housing to rapidly escalating house prices It's easy to lose sight of the human stories behind it. For Mohammed, growing up in precarious and inadequate housing as a child narrowed his horizons and limited his options. And for some of the tenants that save for renting support, housing issues lead to mental health crises and physical health problems. So how can we reframe the crisis to avoid the real world consequences getting lost in technical discussions? And how do we zoom out to see how the unavailability of decent housing is affecting people's lives? Hashi and Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Before we we go any further, full disclosure, before I moved into journalism, Ben was actually my boss at Safer Renting. So I'll have to be careful what I say on the podcast. So first of all, Hashi, Your amazing book draws on your own experiences as a young child. Can you tell us a bit about what the housing you lived in was like?
0: Yes. uh, Thank you very much for for having me on this, Sarah. I grew up in Brent, northwest London, around the sort of the mid-1990s, early noughties. And we were living in really crowded accommodation. So just to give you an idea, we had 18 members of three different households sharing a three-bedroom house. And I mean, to say the least, it was the most difficult and crowded and no privacy and no kind of dignity in that life. But that's how we arrived in Britain as refugees, as people who were trying to survive, as people who were left to fend for themselves by a local authority that was completely under resourced didn't know what it was doing and frankly didn't have the resources to be able to look after people and by the way those of us who were living in that crowded situation the vast majority of us were were children the vast majority of us were children who were trying to make sense of a very very difficult um, and precarious housing situation and that was essentially how I started my life in, in Britain. And then from there, we moved on from one squalor council accommodation to the next until finally 10 years after being on the housing register and housing waiting list, uh, we were given uh, a home. But again, that home by that point was still a three-bedroom house you know, for seven of us instead of 18 of us. So that gives you a rough idea of how I started out.
2: Um, And in your book, you reflect on how Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own kind of illustrated how the inability to earn a secure income and have the space to reflect limited women's horizons. And I really like the way you use this analogy in your book to kind of describe the emotional impact of unstable housing. Can you tell us a bit more about this?
0: Yes. So A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, which was written a little bit, over 100 years ago, was just her way of explaining that a woman needs her own space to be able to do her creative work. She talks about how, imagine what would have happened if Shakespeare had a sister. Would she have had an opportunity to reflect, to write, to get published, and to have this kind of cultural significance that William Shakespeare has today? So what I've done is I've taken that idea, bearing in mind that my first book was about social mobility, what it takes to make it, and, and the difficulties of social mobility in Britain today, and I've expanded out from the room of one's own, from Virginia Woolf, to a home of one's own, to say actually one of the most critical aspects of what it means to make it in society, to be successful, to have an opportunity, to fulfil your full potential is, is really that critical need of a basic human right of having a head, a place where you can lay your head. And that idea of what Virginia Woolf was talking about 100 years ago, for me, remains critically relevant today on a much bigger scale, and not just for women, but for people who need a home, no matter who you are, frankly. Because today, whether you're working, not working, whether you're working and earning a decent amount, whether you're trying to get opportunities, getting on the property ladder, getting a house that isn't precarious, getting a home that is stable is actually for the very, very small minority, sadly.
2: And Ben, when we talk about the housing crisis, it's something that's talked about a lot all the time and we don't seem to be moving forward towards any solutions. What does the housing crisis Mm -hmm. mean to you as a term?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I think it's interesting that Nicola Sturgeon, who's been announced plans for rent control in Scotland, has been, first I've known, who's talked about the the cost of living crisis, which includes the rent crisis, as a, a crisis like a pandemic. It's a national emergency. And I think that's what the difference is, and you've really seen that. I mean, I started doing this work in 1990, and we said there was a housing crisis then. And it's nothing like it it, it is now. I, I left the, the frontline housing services in 2001 to do other things and only came back to it in 2009. And it was like parachuting down into a different world. You know, the, the right to buy had really kicked in. Buy to let had become the big thing. Lots of kind of middlemen looking to make money from property without actually owning the property. And now it's just a complete wild west out there. And people are just being worn down by it. They really are. It, it is the worst. In 32 years, it's the worst I've, I've known it.
2: And um, in Hashi's book, he describes Brent's housing department as a place where dreams were made and crushed. Ben, I know that you spend a lot of time supporting tenants who need the kind of emergency help with their housing that they would get from going to a council department. Can you tell us a bit about what people in this situation today face?
1: Uh, you mean if they go to the local authority for help? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Homelessness units, I've got a lot of time for homelessness units. I should say that Safer Renting provides what's called a, a tenancy relations officer service for 13 London boroughs. So we deal with rogue landlords. But necessarily that means that we get involved in homelessness issues as well. And most London homelessness units will see somewhere between five and 6,000 cases a year which is absolutely phenomenal, and they've got nowhere to put them. Uh, I mean, Brent, I know particularly um, Hashi, and they've got um, they've routinely discharged homeless duties to Birmingham, and they have a Brent council worker who lives in Birmingham, whose job it is to get pe- kids into schools and people into GPs, just to kind of smooth it over. Because if you're owed the full housing duty by a homelessness unit, the property on offer has to be suitable. And one of the biggest things about suitability is it has to be affordable. And basically, most places in London, it isn't affordable. So if you get evicted by your landlord because you can't afford the rent and you get picked up by the homelessness unit, then it's quite likely, unless you've got compelling reasons, that you're going to be end up in Telford or Birmingham or Bristol or Canterbury. That, that's the nature of it. And on M- Monday this week, a report was published jointly by the housing, the homelessness charity crisis and Zoopla, the online uh, lettings portal. And they said that over the past year, only 12% of properties advertised on Zoopla were affordable to people on benefits. And so that, that's the problem that people have got. They go into homelessness units and it's such a stressful job in a homelessness. I started out in a homelessness unit that sick leave is very, very high. Um, it's difficult to find replacements. It's a very, very fluid market. You imagine what it's like that you're, every day you go in to do your job at nine o'clock in the morning and you see maybe five or six new cases, all of them desperate, all looking to you for help and you've got nowhere to put them. It's a really difficult environment for them. um,
0: Ben, I was thinking about that, the discharging of people and the duty. um, hmm. It's really interesting. And Brent, you're absolutely right, does that. And, And actually, it's a way of local authorities being able to kind of outsource their responsibilities to other local authorities across the country. They just want to get you off the register. There isn't any meaningful engagement as to why there is such a high need in this local area why the council hasn't done enough to build more housing social housing to help people and so on i mean are you hmm. seeing that as a sort of tactic more uh, 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 other london boroughs apart from brent because i know it's 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 quite a an epidemic in in brent for sure
1: it, it is every london borough every city borough has got these particular things. You get it in in rural communities as well, but there's less people going through the homelessness unit, but they've also got less staff. So the pressure is kind of the same in a way. The big game, to the thing that is very much kind of a hobby horse for me is that when the Localism Act came in in 2011, 2012, I can't remember the year it was. 2011? They allowed for the... 2011, yeah. They provided for the first time... That the local authority could discharge its duty to the homeless by offering them properties in the private rented sector, and if they turned it down, then that would be duty discharged. Yeah, and so the well, homeless well, it was worse than desperate.
0: That, it wasn't it worse than that? If you didn't accept the privately rented um, property, you were being—you're going to be classed as intentionally homeless.
1: I'm not sure you, that that would be the loss of the home. Mind you, you could you could become homeless by failing to take up an offer. I don't know of any homelessness unit who've used that as an argument. They do it on suitability. That's how it, how it works. So they say if the property is suitable and you you turn it down, then that's duty discharged, and they just move to the next one in the in the queue. But the the impact of that has been massive because it means to in order to discharge duties to the homeless they need private landlords and so there many councils are offering finders fee of several thousand pounds to landlords just to hand their properties over and a lot of times it's something we, we argue about in say for renting regularly is that the They're so desperate for these private properties that a lot of times the procurement teams are signing up landlords who their own enforcement teams are taking legal action against.
2: Can you explain that... A little bit more for an audience um you know that might not know how the enforcement team works because it's it's really is a scandal it's the enforcement team are pursuing landlords who are maybe breaking the law who may be evicting people who may be putting people on the street and then at the same time that that's happening in one arm of the council you're saying in another arm there to house the homeless they're actually being paid big finders fees
1: absolutely I'd give you a concrete example of a local authority i worked with before say, for renting um, there was a landlord that we had prosecuted for essentially demanding money with menaces from his tenants he was a violent thug and we prosecuted him twice and he had a very very distinctive name and my desk happened to be next door to the procurement team's desk and they said oh we need to ring up mr x And I said, you're not talking about him, are you? And they went, yeah. They said, he provides 29 units of accommodation for our most vulnerable clients. I said, he's a violent thug that we prosecuted. And it was just like, oh, Ben, shut up. It's like an inconvenient truth we don't want to hear about. So I pushed it and I said, no, I'm I'm not having this. But this goes on all all along. You've got landlords who are being prosecuted by environmental health for disrepair issues. I can recall one case where a landlord was given £10,000 to bring property up to scratch to use as homelessness accommodation when he already owed council tax £30,000, but nobody bothered about it. It, it, It's a massive industry. I,
0: I know of one example in Brent where not only have they prosecuted the guy,
1: they convicted
0: him and he was then classified by the local authority as not fit for purpose you know basically we we cannot use his property when they class in brent anyway yeah. they classify you as not fit for purpose which means they can't use your property but then what yeah. he did was he signed a lease with a company and the company was now offering the property as a place for vulnerable young adults coming out of prison so yep. then that off that property was then offered up to the council through this third party and we're telling the council you've prosecuted this guy twice he's actually been to prison once but now mm-hmm. you somebody else has come forward you haven't asked for the lease you haven't asked what it looks like what it says but you're now renting out his property and effectively putting money in his pocket but you've prosecuted him it's scandalous yeah Yeah.
2: and hashi when we're talking about this experience you know of people you know councils who have got a huge demand of people who are homeless who are in really vulnerable situations And then the only option is housing them with landlords who may not be reputable in properties that may not be satisfactory. And in worst case, taking people who've established their life in London and then saying, the only thing we can offer you is a property in Birmingham. I know you've had first-hand experience of that kind of pillar to post existence. What was the emotional impact of that for you?
0: I mean, the, the emotional impact for me and anybody who's experienced this is enormous because you are being completely uprooted from your community. You're being wrenched out of the places that you have gone to school, that you have made friends, that you have grown up, that you have made your formative years. And then you're being told, we're now going to put you in Birmingham, where you know no one, where you don't know how the local schools work, where you don't have any friends, where you don't even know the street names. And that emotional toll will have... An impact on people in relation to the kind of education they have their mental and physical well-being the relationships that they go on to build the relationships they have with the institutions how they then see themselves in society family conflicts arise out of those situations and of course then those people will struggle to find jobs and have meaningful lives and careers later on so for me it's it's so obvious the consequences And the emotional downfall and all these problems. I just don't
1: understand how people don't see that. It's so obvious to me. So you'll remember when Sarah worked for Safer Rensing, she came up with a a kind of a slogan, but we still work on this premise now is that illegal eviction, which is what we deal with, is the ultimate theft. Because you're not just losing your home. You're not, it's not like using your mobile phone or even your car. You know, you're losing your sense of security, your children's sense of security, your mental health. It's just massive. And the amount that we did a published a, a, a annual count of illegal evictions, a very, very difficult thing to do. And we found, and this will be a very conservative estimate, in uh, June that there last year there had been just under eight thousand illegal evictions in Britain 8,000 families and many in, of them in a year. Yeah. In a year, yeah. And and many of them end up in the homelessness unit. And so the landlord can't jack up the rent, they can't afford the rent. So the landlord illegally evicts them, they get picked up in the homeless unit and sent to Birmingham.
2: Um, And I feel like what we've been talking about here so far is kind of the sharp end of the crisis. It's the people who are really facing the direct consequences to the point that they're experiencing homelessness, precarious housing insecurity. And I think one thing that you kind of highlighted in your book, Hashi, is that this is a problem that spans a big section of society and things that might not appear to be linked, for example, foreign investment in central London properties are actually linked to this lower end of the market where we see people facing this kind of criminal um, abuse by their landlords. As kind of a bigger systemic problem, you talk about the intergenerational nature of this and the unfair caricatures that are made about young people who are seen as sort of avocado eating, latte drinking spendthrifts. And, And as one of those people, I was very gratified to read you highlighting that. I really found it interesting what you you were talking about as a planning barrister, attending planning hearings, and this intergenerational issue really coming to the fore there. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yes, absolutely. And before I do that, let me just reflect also on that ripple effect that you mentioned about Russian oligarchs or, or Arab sheikhs buying up central London property. What's interesting about that is If, for example, you're not necessarily a criminal barrister, but a barrister who was well-to-do and earning a decent amount of money in the 1990s or a management consultant or one of the top professions, you would have been able to buy a property in Zone 1 of central London and be able to afford it. Today, no matter how well you're doing as a junior barrister, even if you're doing the commercial law, there is zero chance that you'll be able to afford anywhere in central London. So where do you go? Mm-hmm. You end up in Brent or Walthamstow, Leytonstone, the kind of zone three, zone four areas. And what are you then doing? What you're then doing is you're taking away housing stock that might have gone to a nurse. Or might have gone to a paramedic or a a police officer, a public servant, a civil servant or somebody who isn't uh, going to be earning a huge amount of money. So that's the ripple effect of how prime central London location properties being taken out and being bought up in droves as investments then go on to have that ripple effect on people and their lives and the housing stock and the housing crisis generally. But on the intergenerational point for me it's always quite fascinating you turn up at a public inquiry it's a tuesday morning the development is for 150 houses 10 of which are so called affordable but we all know that isn't affordable to people's local uh, uh, uh amounts but affordable in the sense it's like 80% or 70% of the market rent and it's probably been approved by the local authority the local authority has said it should be given planning permission, but it's been refused. And here we are wasting hundreds of thousands of pounds at a public inquiry. You look at the audience and frankly, with no disrespect, silver hair. And those people are saying no to this development. And each and every single one of them, you say, how much did you buy your house for? Oh, I bought my house in 1967, 1972. How much did you pay? £2,000. Well, there was a lot of money back then, £10,000. Oh my God, you should have seen the interest rates. Completely divorced from the reality of what it means to be owning a property in 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 these doesn't have to be London in any of these places around the country today. And these people will turn up to say no for a variety of reasons, flooding, traffic, right to light, trees, amenities, some of which is justified, but most of which is quite frankly bogus. And for me, what I always struggle to understand, and I reflect on this in the book, is where is the intergenerational solidarity for people like this to understand that buying a property or having a chance to buy a property today is infinitely more difficult than anything that those people ever experienced in their lives. No disrespect to the challenges that they might have faced back then, but it's infinitely more difficult today than it was then but there is zero solidarity and the final thing I'd say about that is in France where I lived in for for a few years the government would introduce a law that made it easier for young people to be hired and fired by their employers because the government saw that as an opportunity to start up the economy and so if the companies were not afraid to hire then the economy would get boosted because they weren't afraid to sack these people. And so they were able to sack them within the first two years without really giving a good reason. Only apply to people under 21 because they were young, get them into the economy. There was hundreds of thousands of people on the streets saying absolutely no way. And most of these people were completely and utterly over the age of 21 because they understood the intergenerational solidarity of no, you're not gonna pass this law, even if it doesn't affect us, you're not gonna do this to our children because we didn't, you didn't do that to us, why should you do it to them? Find another way to kickstart the economy. That sort of intergenerational solidarity somehow when it comes to housing in particular in this country is just missing. And for me, that is the difficulty of what we face today.
2: I found it interesting and Your explanation for that in the book, because it's something that I've also found difficult at times to kind of understand, was that people are kind of helping their own children but not necessarily seeing this as a problem on a broader level. Can you tell us a little bit about that theory of yours?
0: Yes. So the point I make about that is that whilst those silver-haired people would necessarily want to stop that sort of development happening in their local area, and I'm caricaturing them the way they caricatured our generation for being Netflix-loving, avocado-eating snowflakes. But uh, I'm trying to not generalize, but it's, it's, it's quite a fitting uh, description of most of them, I would suggest. But those same people make up a large proportion of what we now know to be the bank of mum and dad. The bank of mum and dad is the group of people who help children get on the property ladder by personally either lending money or personally underwriting the mortgages of their children. And the Bank of Mum and Dad is known to be the fifth biggest lender in this country. And so for me, the intergenerational solidarity in the room would often exist for their own children, perhaps, but not for society as a whole. And that, to me, is another example, and I'm sure Ben will have a view on this, where that continued way in which wealth is passed down to generations means that some people will have their disadvantages and their inequalities continually compounded and passed down, whereas those who have, as opposed to have-nots, those who have are able to pass it on personally, personally able to pass it on, but societally stifle any progress for anyone else. I wonder what your thoughts are on that, Ben.
1: I agree. I think coming from that generation, I've obviously got no hair, but if I did, it would be silver. Um, but, you know, coming from that, I do remember the situation, how it was to buy it. I think things have changed so much because at some point in the last 15 years, home ownership and landlording as well became an alternative to a pension correct i I think it kind of started when robert maxwell died um because the mirror pension group destroyed everyone's faith in pensions and that kind of all happened around the same time and so very much there's a old english expression about drawing up your drawbridge and i think once you've got into that situation you know a house a two-bedroom house in in the nineteen seventies, in London, as you were saying, it might you know only be twenty five thousand pound, but now you've got ordinary people who are essentially millionaires. Of my age you know, who overnight. Just, uh, I, yeah, absolutely. Just because they're in a a property. I, I spent some time living in East Dulwich, and East Dulwich, when I was growing up, was nowhere to go. There was nothing special about it, and they're just kind of very. Average nineteen uh, uh, sorry Victorian terraced houses with small front gardens and small back gardens, and ordinary people lived there and now East Dulwich is full of celebrities because you can 't buy one of those places for under about nine hundred and fifty thousand pounds it 's just absolutely crazy, so it 's almost like the the property owning classes have kind of come further down the hill. And now ordinary people who would have just been okay, like my parents' generation, were just kind of okay. Now ordinary people are millionaires and they're looking after their children, but not, as you say, um, Hashi, definitely not in- entertaining any idea of it being a massive social thing. It's almost that sense of, oh, thank God we got here. The mortgage is paid off. We made it. That's that's the kind that, of thing.
0: That point you made there, I'm, I'm really interested to pursue that. You know, I one of the things I argue in the book is about that mental change of seeing your house as a pension as opposed to mm. as a home interestingly there there is also a massive housing crisis in Ireland and and I was talking to some Irish friends the other day about the situation in Dublin now I'm I'm interested to know where that shift took place I mean you've identified the Robert Maxwell situation I mean of course Gordon Brown was was known To have apparently raided the pensions uh, during his time as Chancellor tell me a little bit more about why the Robert Maxwell situation which obviously I know he completely killed so many people the mirror groups pension and so on but what what was it about Maxwell's period or can you think of any other um, kind of cultural shifts that moved people away from their pensions into 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 what they are rather than into into properties
1: i think the maxwell thing for me is a a very personal thing because it happened when i was at a certain age there was was a culture shock a bit that you know people would say well you get your pension that's how you were brought up have a family put money in your pension that was the the route that you went and i grew up thinking that, that that was kind of sacrosanct that you that's what you did and you worked hard and then at the end of it i could do what my parents did and retire and have a little bit of money put aside and that was it And then when Maxwell went over, I mean, he wasn't a popular figure at the time anyway, but when it came out, what happened with um, uh, the Mirror Group pension holders was a complete shock to me. And I think I can't remember when it was, but I think I was probably in my 20s or something at the time. But I didn't know that could happen. I didn't know that pensions were just so precarious. Interesting. That was the first thing that my generation looked around and went, my God, you know, so I could put all this money into something for my whole life and at the end of it have nothing. Yeah. I just thought that was scary. And I think it scared a lot of other people. And it's since then I've understood more about how um, pensions work. You know, trade unions invent, invested them. Local authorities invested in them. And it's a kind of a liquid market yeah. that I didn't know. And I think a lot of people just thought, well, the standard old thing growing up, my parents drummed it into me, bricks and mortar, son. That's what you do, bricks and is always safe. Yeah. It's like the gold standard, you know what I mean? Yeah. If the price will only go up, it will never go down. That was the what we were brought up, get on the property ladder.
2: Ben, um, we're, we're starting to run out of time, but there's just one question that I, I really wanted to ask you. Um, your career's kind of spanned frontline work for over 30 years, dealing with people really at the sharp end of this crisis. Is there a case that sticks with you that illustrates just how emotional what feels like a very technical crisis can be?
1: Oh God, millions. About, you've asked me this question before, and I think it, it's a seemingly minor one in, in tenancy relations terms. It wasn't you know, something that was if someone, their landlord had put them in hospital or anything like that, but it was a woman, it was only about three years ago. You, I think you may have dealt with her at some point as well, so I can't remember her name, but she was being intimidated by her landlord she was renting a room in a house and um, she owed him money and he wouldn't give her a tenancy agreement a written agreement so she could claim benefits properly but he used to go around and intimidate her regularly and she sold off her grandma's uh, jewellery she sold off everything she had and she was terrified of him but she was so terrified she wouldn't let me talk to him and i could have taken injunction out against him or you know done a whole range of things but she didn't want it and so, so you were kind of you were heart you were hobbled by that kind of a, approach and every week she used to ring me up and talk for about an hour about how it was getting her down it was driving her suicidal and all of this kind of stuff but I just couldn't do anything. And eventually we did manage to pull some strings with a homeless student and got her out of there. And I felt really bad about the whole case because I hadn't done anything. But when she phoned me up, when she was uh, gone, she went, thank you so much, because if I couldn't talk to you once a week, I would have committed suicide by now. And you think that's what people are living under? Things like this.
0: And Ben, I know that Sarah's told us we're running out of time, but I had a quick question for you. Mm. What are your? Because um, I'm still trying to form my ideas around this. But what are your thoughts on rent controls?
1: Uh-huh. Um, rent controls. Well, well, let's look at it. The argument about rent controls go. You can read everyone all the landlord industry say it doesn't work and it just makes it worse for the tenants but again being old enough i actually can remember what renting was like when rent control was across the board prior to 1989 and landlords always say yeah but there was no investment the private rented sector was really small but it didn't need to be any big because we had a massive social rented sector it was only when it got sold off and they got rid of protected tenancies so that things get got really difficult um, there isn't one type of rent control. There's lots of different models. Different countries have got them. Um, even Scotland were talking about having pressure zones where they would identify areas where it was causing so many problems. So rent control is not just one model. And you can bring them in temporarily as well. And for most of the 20th century, there has been rent control in Britain. Always terribly unpopular with the Conservatives and the landlord industry always very very popular with even the few protected tenants who are left now so th- the idea is it's a quite a complex argument so where you fall on it is you either be on the landlord side or the tenant side and I'm for rent control I think it's too much of a crisis now because if you don't and people get evicted they go down the homelessness unit and they've got nowhere for them either it's just a An absolute nonsense. Any form of rent control was going to have some negative effects and some positive effects, but you just got to weigh it up. To me, beyond all the complexities, is who is the one who's really going to be able to breathe easy at night with rent control is. And if that's the tenant and the landlord can't, I'm happy with that.
2: That really is all we've got time for today. Thank you so much to Hashi and Ben for joining us. And thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect Magazine, which has hit the newsstands today. Or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In this issue, you will find writing from Sheila Hancock, Will Hutton, John Lloyd and many more. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.